look, here he is. Not tonight, you're not on the list. Hello, I'm Connor McLoon and welcome to the new podcast, You're Not On The List, where I interview and dive deep into the lives of those in the music industry. From event organisers to DJs and promoters to label owners, we take a look at the early life and careers of those in the music scene. My guest this week is founder and co-owner of Foreverland, Connor Scanlan. During this episode, we discuss what took Foreverland from a monthly event in Bournemouth with a paddling pool and confetti cannon to a 21-day tour around the four corners of the UK. We also discuss some of the tensions that can be experienced between promoters and agents, and what can go wrong when you're working on a tour for 15 weeks straight. My guest this week is owner of one of the UK's most exciting and extravagant nationwide parties. They've thrown events up and down the country and across Europe and soon to be the world. It's Foreverland. It's Connor Scanland. Connor, how are you? Yeah, good, mate. How you doing, Con? I'm well, thank you. I'm well. It's a rainy day in Manchester. We've had about two and a half weeks of sun. That's probably the whole of summer done, summer sun in Manchester. We're now back to grey, miserable skies, but it's bank holiday weekend. Can't complain at all. Mate, yeah, it's pretty much the exact same thing down here right now. Um, last weekend, I was planning the whole bank holiday weekend because I was out riding my bike with a t-shirt on and I got sunburned. And uh, this weekend, it's been a nice mixture of rain, wind, rain, wind. and uh, That's Bournemouth for you, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, I know, I know, but it's still pretty. But yeah, it's a shame. It's a shame that it's not a blaring sunshine. No, you can't get everything there. You can't get everything. You look like you're rocking a bit of a tan at the moment, to be honest, though, mate. So I don't know where you've been on the odd sunbeds or whether it's the yeah, warmer sun, but. Yeah, serious. It's off the back of last weekend. Yeah. I, I, yeah, literally just riding my bike and stuff. And I was like, oh, hello. Nice. Yeah, I was going to say, looking fresh with it, mate. You got that healthy glow. You got that healthy yeah, glow. A bit of skincare. so for people that might not know what foreverland is in my mind i mean it's a party now you've celebrated your seventh birthday this year it's a party in an event that has an eclectic selection of artists and djs so we're talking baseline tech house uh commercial drum and bass you've got axle grinders you've got confetti you've got stilt walkers you've got aliens you've got everything going on from the production side the design side how would you uh describe the foreverland brand yeah i think um you definitely kind of nailed it in terms of the mix of, of different elements it's always been a little bit diy and a little bit crazy which is sort of what has differentiated us from some of the more polished nights um and it's also been our charm and like you said we've got the performers we've got the decor we've got the pyro um musically it's always been a bit of a mixed match as well um which the idea of that was always to cater for for everybody which i feel like most brands haven't done because they will pick a genre and the fan base will be loyal to that genre and they'll do well but there's some events where, like, I know you're the same as me. You like garage, you like grime, you like house, you like bass. And it's just cool to go to a place where there's a bit of all of it. And obviously, naturally, that has changed and meandered and, and matured since we've grown as well. So I don't know if you remember the early, early ones. Um, it- I mean, I want to get full disclosure on this. Do I remember the early, early ones? I was the first DJ to ever play at Foreverland. Yeah. I so that, that's, that's out there in the blue now. We want to say, I am friends with Connor. We've met before. I was the first DJ to play at Foreverland. So there's no narcissism. What was the name? What was the name? What was your DJ name at the time? Uh, it was Cokes, C-O-A-X. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mad. Um, and was that, the, was that the first set? It's the first set at the, the first, first night yeah. at Bournemouth. Had the first, you know, I actually forgot it was the first set. <laughs> first one, mate. First literally opening oh, up. There's some heritage there. That is, that is. So yeah. it started off in Bournemouth, didn't it? Yeah, so Bournemouth, it was... the. 21st of March 2015, I think. 
Off the top okay. Um, and yeah, it was it was Bournemouth, and it was sort of born out of the. I remember we were going to all these massive um, like treatment, like house raves, and it was it was sort of when we first started uni, and it was all like the Breach and Second City and Route ninety four, and mm-hmm. um, Hannah wants Julio like, Bashmore and stuff like that as well. Yeah, and yeah. Hannah wants to be like at the bottom of the bill. And Miley Leng used to play those shows mm-hmm. as well. And Chris Lorenzo calls in yep. effect with those people. And the music was so fun. It was like Jack in House, like vocal deep house. And then like, as a couple of years went on, it started getting a bit weird and a bit dark and a bit eerie. And it was kind of like 10 walls. And then it would start going more and more left field. Um, and it became less fun and a lot more serious. And at the same time in my life, I was like, I still I, I feel a little bit like dark and a bit like weird. And I just wanted to have fun. So kind of came up with the idea to, take the best bits of that but throw in a a little bit of childishness to it and a little Mm. bit of like laissez-faire attitude um so that's where the idea for all the the sort of weird and wonderful elements came from so you touched on it there saying about that we were going to those types of events down in Bournemouth and those nights were on and there was something that was sort of missing when those events adapted if Mm. we was to take it back a little bit further before that like you studied at Bournemouth University and and those were the events you were going to at Bournemouth Uni but so what was your earliest experiences with live music or like when you were younger what was the thing that sort of you think stemmed you off in wanting to wanting to put events on or sort of gave you that initial interest in music yeah, I think really, to be honest, I, w- I wasn't really, especially in relation to dance music, I wasn't really exposed to much dance music at a really young age. First dance music I, I was really listening to was like dubstep and used to watch all these like mad dubstep remix videos on, on YouTube and stuff. And um, I remember I actually watched it the other day. You remember the, the example of Love Kit Starts Again, a video of like the guy getting chased by other people. Yeah. Um, like that was a sick video. Um, and obviously being from Croydon, we had... Black Sheep, um, which was which was a club bar there, which was sort of like a rock indie kind of bar club. But then at the weekends, they would do dubstep events, a drum and bass oh. events. And that's where Scream and all those guys kind of carved their lane. So there was always a bit of that element in, in the area. And I think Mode Step were like really big at the time with, with like people from local school as well. So... As a young kid, I didn't really have that much um, that much reference to it. But I remember when I was sort of, um, it's actually also the start of my sort of promoter event industry story. I was 17 and I was walking down Croydon High Street with a friend and this girl came up to us and she was trying to fly her to get us into this into this club. Um, and obviously I didn't have any ID, so I was 17 and I actually hadn't been out to a club before I was 18. So I was, I was trying to flirt with her and trying to get in. And obviously it wasn't very good at flirting because it didn't get me nowhere. But <laughs> we did swap numbers. And a couple of weeks later, I ended up trying. She actually invited me to go and try and, and do a trial shift at the job. And it just kicked off and I was doing all this stuff. And, and I got really, really close with the management there, almost to the point I was basically like living upstairs in, in this nightclub. And that was the first time that I got exposed to house music. And at that time, the deep house theme was like huge. It was all like hot creations and pleasure state and like all the leaf off stuff and Hungry for the Power. Um, it was sort of around like 2011, 2012. It must have been, yeah. Because, um, yeah, I was literally fresh 18. So, yeah, it must have been roughly around 2011, 2012, yeah. And it was it was the early the early days of the Deep House stuff. And that was just like a whole new world to me. And that was, they we used to run like all these house nights in Croydon. And obviously at the time, I didn't really understand the full picture. I could only see what was in front of me. And, and I was like, I loved the music. And they used to like stand behind the, the, like, the DJ before the beginning of the night 
DJ wouldn't be there for like the first two hours. And he'd have like a CD of like an hour long house mix. And I'd stand like in the DJ decks pretending as if I was the <laughs> gem. And all I was doing was like basically taking the bass out a little bit or like notching up, notching up the top and whatever it was, it kind of fascinated me. And that was, yeah, literally when I was 18. So that was my first kind of real experience. And that was the turning point. Because if you look at it back, that was the start of my sort of career. And now I've been doing that for almost nine, 10 years. Yeah. So that was my first real serious exposure to, to dance music. Because you touched on it there as well. You did DJ for a little while, didn't you? Oh, a little while. A little while, because that's the first time I ever met you. This is getting very self-indulgent now, but the first time I met you was in Halo uh, smoking area outside. And I remember you were playing uh, a set at Old Fire Station the next day. Oh, mate, it was, yeah, it was, I, w- I wouldn't even regard it as a DJ career, mate. It was literally, God knows how it started, but I, I got a controller from somewhere, obviously. 100 quid, um, one of the like, little Newmark Nexus Pros or something too. Yeah. And I was messing around in, in my room just for what I felt like all like just hours and hours. But one day I wasn't a very good DJ, but but I was good at being loud and raising awareness. I was yeah. I was a good promoter. Which you have, uh, which you've incorporated into the uh, Foreverland theme as well, haven't you? Oh, cool. You're not shy to get onto the mic. Not shy yeah. to get onto the mic. Oh well, I have. We'll get onto that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, like literally, I was doing all these weird things with like computers, and like, I knew how to work the algorithms, and had all these little softwares and stuff, and. I was getting like thousands and thousands of listens on my mixes and I was selling like hundreds of tickets every week for all these events. And then off the back of that, people started booking me. And I think my first ever gig was like Sound Circus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that in Bournemouth, which is a club, yeah. Absolute disaster. And then um, and then off the back of that, yeah, I got a gig playing before Sammy Porter in Fire Station. But Sammy Porter was like a hip hop DJ then. Obviously now he's now he's all involved with Love Juice and stuff. Um, and that was um, that was like a student night. And then I had a set at Halo playing for, remember Mint Hair, Hair Salon? I do it remember that, yeah. Um, disco. yeah. And I, I, I DJed there. Um, and then I got I got a set at Egg. I played at Egg. In London? I, yeah. And yeah. then I played at Ministry. And then I played at Egg again. Um, oh, just, wait a minute. You haven't introduced your uh, DJ name yet because you remember me saying oh, my no. name. So yeah. go on, what was your DJ name, Connor Scanland? Well, look, before we, before we sort of do the grand reveal, you'll understand at the time there was a very clear marketing concept to it but looking back it's a i don't cringe that much <laughs> so, do you know what you can introduce me i'm not even gonna say so, i think if i remember correctly uh connor went under the banner of bandana, <laughs> bandana. <laughs> right? yeah. Yeah. yeah dj bandana and, um, and you did used to wear a bandana didn't you i did yeah and I, for some reason i thought it was like i had this vision that thousands of people would come and see me and they'd all wear bandanas. Yeah. Um, no, I can see the market in there. I can see it's not it's not as silly as uh it's not as silly as it as it you're the same. I guess it was like a Jaguar Skills Dead Mouse kind of thought process at the time. Yeah. Um and there was a guy in my halls, uh Dan, and he did this like little ad lib, which is like, Hey Johanna Montana, what do you know about DJ Bandana? <laughs> <laughs> And it used to be at the start of every mix. It was an absolute, absolute shocker, to be honest. Are they still out there? They are, mate. I actually was. Um, I actually played them last yeah. week for the first time in about three, four years. Yeah, um, they weren't bad, to be fair. But um, yeah, it was. It was a short and sharp uh, indulgement into the DJ thing. Mm. I really enjoyed it, but I realised that I was a better promoter than I was a DJ. And realistically, if you want to make a real indent on, on the sort of DJ world, you've got to produce as well. And I don't have the patience to 
just sit in a room and do that at the moment, or at least up until now. So I realized I was kind of doing, I ended up DJing and getting into events and I realized I'm not that good at DJing, but I'm pretty, I'm clearly above average for, for promoting. So yeah, DJ Bandana was, uh, was no more. As many people in the music industry agree, you can have all the talent in the world, but sometimes it's just about being in the right place at the right time. I spoke to Connor about how pinnacle it was starting Foreverland in Bournemouth, or could it have happened anywhere else in the UK? We talked about um, Foreverland starting off down in Bournemouth. Yeah. How much do you think uh, Bournemouth shaped the the start of the brand and sort of what Foreverland has turned into? Yeah, I don't I don't think necessarily that there's anything really unique to Bournemouth um, that is clear in in sort of the brand and the event. I think certainly almost in t- almost you know very largely my experience in Bournemouth as just the fact that I was here, I was living here, the time of my life the impact of the university, going to these kind of events, you know, the, the the experience I had of Bournemouth enabled me to create the event. But it wasn't, you know, some people might say, oh yeah, I spent X amount of time in, in Bristol and Bristol had this scene and that inspired me to make this music. I wouldn't really say that, but what I would say is that there were references, probably influences from London for sure and also maybe from Southampton as well I don't really feel like Bournemouth has a music scene to be honest and Southampton has a bit of a garage scene coming from London at the time grime was really blowing up definitely not going to take credit for, for making grime blow up but definitely on the south coast we were the first to do it and and it did blow up at the same time and I think I brought that London city kind of rougher edge bigger bases bass lines and garage and grime I brought that down to Bournemouth. We were talking about here specifically, I remember Skepsis being at some of the very early shows, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, Skepsis was a resident for about a year. Yeah, so he was one I of the... I uh... um, a couple of weeks ago because I was going, I was clearing out some stuff on my laptop and I went through my old notes and I had like a little P&L that I made on my notes and it's like Skepsis 70 quid. <laughs> <laughs> you could try booking for that now. I think you'd be, uh, you'd be struggling, yeah. man. But. I, sent, I sent it to him and it, we were laughing because it's like, you know, it's just silly. But then saying that, to be honest, I, I, in those days, I had three headliners in every single lineup. One was always one was always Garage. Yeah. One was always like a bassy house act. Mm-hmm. And then, sorry, one was Grime, one was Garage, and one was like a house slash bassy house act. And the night, the running order would flow like that. Mm. You'd come into the night and it'd have like a grimy kind of like, as your set would have been, almost like a grimy instrumental kind of intro. Mm-hmm. And it would, then it would pick up about half 11 in sort of like a garagey thing. And then it would go into like a bassy, housey sound and it would finish and like kind of like more melodic, uh, long form, more emotional, ethereal house. And we were having like AJ Tracy, we've got Section Boys, 6-7, Youngin, Chip. Um, we had Stormzy literally at summer ball after the mm-hmm. first two and that was that was a pick do you know what i mean because that that was he blew up that was when sharp was was big yeah loads of people mate um loads of people and and i actually really loved those days because i loved the music and it was so different to everything else because one we were one of the only people doing it on the south coast and two it was on the same night as the garage stuff which was like the heritage stuff and then it was the house stuff as well and it was something for everyone and we had the different rooms. They were really fun times. Um, unfortunately, you wouldn't even get a look in now because your AJ Tracy's are 20, 30, 40 grand and they wouldn't even play it anyway. Do you know what I mean? They wouldn't even play a venue like that. So it was it was a moment in time um, and probably similar to what you said about Skepsis, you know, we were getting Skepsis for 70 quid and we, we were there at the start of baseline as well. 
Mm. So you, that wouldn't happen these days. And maybe it's luck, maybe it's skill, maybe it's a combination of the two. But however we look at it, we were there when we brought Garage back because Garage had, had a re- revival. We brought Grind to the South Coast. And yeah, we, we were kind of there at the start of baseline. So we've been lucky to to ride a couple of waves. Yeah, absolutely, man. I can yeah, I can vouch for being there and uh being there yeah from the very first one to to when we, when I left Bournemouth and mm-hmm. um which they were monthly events, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We did about five or six a year. Um they were monthly in, in Bournemouth at least. And it was just yeah, mate, it was you know, you look back it was it was a crazy time because they were all selling out. And they were all so random. We were pretty much like, I would plan some stuff, but we'd pretty much turn up on the day and figure it out. We'd go to like Winton to G&T's, which is basically sort of like a glorified pound shop. And we'd just go and spend like, we'd just go buy like 200 pieces of random stuff and hang it up and throw it up. And we'd find stuff upstairs in the old fire station. And we just, it was so DIY. The lineups were DIY. The event management was definitely DIY. The decor was DIY. And it was messy. And it was wet and things would explode and we get up bubbles and ice creams. And- I was going to say, that for, the, for, the, for the people that aren't necessarily aware or might not have been to the original ones or been to one of the, any of the recent shows, I remember there was sort of like uh, ball pits and yeah. I feel like there was inflatable sort of bouncy castle type thing there as well. And there was lots of confetti going around and lots <clears> of stuff <throat> that was hang up and like sort of for people that might know Elro, like the way that Elro sort of has their like confetti and it's very colourful and lots of lights and lots of stuff to interact with. That's what it was like when it was down in Bournemouth and stuff like that. There was a lot of uh, a lot of things that were people could interact with and it wasn't just people were going there to necessarily see the music like after the first show or second show or third show and they understood what the theme was like or what the vibe was like. It was like a, an event to go to. Yeah, it was it was it was like a Project X kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It was like turn up, and it would always be busy so early as well. Turn up, and you're gonna have a mad one because we didn't really know what was gonna happen, let alone the the people who were coming. And mate, you you say about the ball pits, like oh, ball pit was pathetic. It was like paddling pool, like <laughs> two hundred balls on that we got from Gumtree or something. And the bouncy castles would break, and we'd have to go travel and buy another bouncy castle and. Like when I've, I think it was like Christmas, we bought like a buck in Bronco and it was supposed to be like a reindeer. And yeah, yeah, it was, it was nuts. It was, it was, it was silly. Um, and actually the funny thing was I never heard of Elro until we actually spread outside of Bournemouth. Right. But a lot of what we had done was completely separate from it. And when I, then I did find out about it, but I didn't actually go to one for about two years later. And it was, and I, I didn't really draw the parallels because they had the confetti and all the decor and all the stuff. But actually, when Elro started in the UK, it actually wasn't obviously where it is now either. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were like doing grime and garage and bass and throwing bubbles at people and you know like party poppers and stuff. And it, and they had like a bit more of a show. Mm-hmm. Um, so it wasn't until only the last kind of three or four years that that sort of comparison has begun to be drawn. Which I'm not, I'm not ashamed of. I, I mean that they're, they're literally probably what the leading event in the world right now yeah it's definitely no it's not it's not a diss or, or a slight against that to be compared to be compared yeah. to, uh, against each other is a compliment to you uh, compliment to you both like it's yeah both fantastic brands and both fantastic uh, experiences there you just mentioned as well about um expanding out outside bournemouth mm. so you've done shows across the whole of the uk and done shows across uh, certain parts of the world at the moment now as well. What made it, when did you know it was the right time to expand out of sort of like the, the origin of Bournemouth, like the origin city, what, what, what happened or what were you aware of that you thought, you know what, it's time to now grow and expand? Yeah, I think to be honest, I've always had the mindset of wanting to do these, 
these huge spectacles. Um, even from the early, like a lot of people will say they kind of stumbled into something. For me, like that was always a kind of a dream of mine. Like I wanted to create these big experiences. And because because the Bournemouth thing just completely hit the ground running and the natural thing was there was Southampton half an hour down the road. And you'll know what the reputation of Switch was like. It was just this sick club, do you know what I mean? And yeah. it made sense. The only thing that was a little bit wild, and it was just because I got got a bit gassed, to be honest, was um, we, we had our first event on the March, sold out. We had our second event on the May, sold out. Our third technical kind of event was... Um, was summer ball with like storms and stuff. And in that summer, I just went, right, we're going for it. And I booked shows in Bristol, Brighton and Southampton. At this point, I didn't know anything about paid advertising or anything like that. It was still flyers and posters and mm. posting in Facebook groups and trying to get ticket reps and stuff. I just thought, let's just go for it. So we did. And they, they either, oh, I think, I think Bristol like almost sold out, Southampton maybe almost sold out, Brighton sold out. So I was like, okay, cool. Like we can do it. So I kind of did it one more round again. Then it was my final year. And by this point, I also had other events. I had like block party and wave and all these other kind of things going on. So I was kind of pulling my hair out for about a year. And then as soon as um, as soon as it came to the end of uni, I was like, right, well now it's now it's real. Now this is this is it. Now this is my life. So um, yeah, made made the move back to London and then just uh, partnered up with somebody and kind of took it. I always took it seriously, but now put a bit more of a strategy to it. Just went straight for a national tour with the twenty one cities on that first tour. So we kind of went from Bournemouth a couple of parties in Southampton and, and Brighton to uh yeah 21 cities straight away and so did you, you you might not necessarily want to answer this you you can feel free to if you'd like to well you were saying when you've been down in Bournemouth you've been like handing out flyers and you've been doing sort of mm. uh, the the advertising techniques that you know and then you expanded to do the 21 cities did you make a loss on any of those shows or where you'd learned to advertise through Facebook and social media and done the branding and stuff like that were they all sort of like profitable when it was a good idea to do all 21 the tour dates yeah well the, the short answer is no it wasn't all profitable we had shows that made money and we had shows that lost money mm-hmm. and we might go somewhere on a friday and make like 1500 quid we might make four grand and then we'd go somewhere on a saturday and lose like six grand right and, and there were shows where i mean that happens anyway to be honest i mean we we had other events in the past that you make a load of money and then you lose it all the next the next one so yeah i think over the course of like 21 cities i think we had like a couple that maybe didn't happen i think like one, one got snowed off in like coventry and right. another one the venue closed so like you had to just take the loss on some of those i think overall we were in the green i think we might have made like i don't know 30 grand or something mm-hmm. over the course of like 21 cities but yeah, it wasn't. It wasn't like, oh my god, we've put these these shows on, we've sold out, and we're rich. Like, yeah, you're not millionaires. Like, I was stressed. I was ill. I was skinny. I was knackered. And you're traveling up and down the country, doing all this hard work. And it was only about three or four of us getting up the ladders, getting down the ladders, doing the decor. And we'd get up in the morning. We'd go from London. I'd travel into London. Then go from London to like Newcastle or Lincoln or somewhere with Glasgow or, or Leeds or somewhere. Travel all day, get there, cool. Turn up at the venue, look at the venue. Right, how are we going to make this work? Then then make sure everything ticks, do the whole thing. Always a rush, obviously. 10 minutes to go, stuff still getting turned on and hung up. Yeah. Knackered. Don't get a chance to really eat properly. Don't get a chance to go back and shower. Then all of a sudden, doors open. You've got to run the show for six hours running around doing all this kind of stuff then it gets to like three four in the morning and we're in liverpool tomorrow or we're in brighton tomorrow or something stupid so now we've got to get all the decor down from three till maybe six in the morning and then you've got to get back to the hotel 
sleep for like three hours, get up and do the whole thing again. Yeah. And that was every weekend uh, for about three or four months. And what made that so much worse was when you're on the way to somewhere knowing tonight I'm losing five grand. Oh, <laughs> And that was not, that's, yeah, that was just, that's a, that's, this is what I mean. This is why I want to do these types of podcasts as well, because there's a, there's sometimes the, that's not the side of live events that people will see or punters will see or people that are oh. attending will see. They'll see the finished product. They'll see the lovely stuff. They might not even realize that obviously it's you going to put all the stuff up. It's you fucking oh, doing yeah. decorating and everything like that. So it's interesting to see that over the grand scheme of things, like you said, you've, you've, you've made profit. You're in the green, which is great. You've, you've experienced and you've learned probably so much over those 21 shows so the next time that you do do a tour or do do that, you can like you've got this you've got this experience and you've got stuff like that. But it's uh it's very interesting to hear that there's everything that went into it and everything that you experienced because I've been to the shows and I've seen it and it's fantastic and it does look great and it's fantastic and everyone's having a good time and everyone's engaged and there's lots going on. But it's um it's really insightful to to hear the other side of that. I mean, that, oh shit sometimes it's not great and like you said there going to a show thinking okay fuck we made 10 grand last night but this next one I know we're losing 5 grand on it but you've still got to put on a smile and still got to be there and go wait everyone's having a party it is unbelievable I mean I couldn't even we don't have time for the stories but on top of on top of just that well give me no we do let's I want to get into some of the stories so yeah so because you... I'll just I'll brush over them but like there's funny things like you know Scott right Yes. So see, Scott Scott has been in the trenches with me. So um, Scott, for people that are listening, uh, is, is your business partner, isn't he? Yeah, he's one of my business partners, yeah. I've got another one called Nathan as well. Um, but but Scott sort of like heads up the production, which nowadays is a lot more formal. There's a lot of health and safety. It's a lot more logistical. There's coverage. There's insurance. There's there's all these kind of risk assessments. It's, it's legit. But hmm. For the first few years, it was him in the club, me standing on his shoulders because a piece of decor was falling down. <laughs> and we're trying to cable tie up whilst whilst the, the show's going on. We've had vans break down. We've had people break into the vans and steal stuff, flat tyres. We've had people lose the keys to the vans. We've had so many times where we've gone to an accommodation and we can't get into the accommodation. We've had times where people were sleeping on floors. Um, you know, we, we've had we've had people like blocking our cars and stuff and we've had to like go to Asda and get baking trays and put baking trays under the under the tires and him try and push the car and me like reverse my car <laughs> into that car to try and slide the other car out of the way. We've we've had so many funny stories. Um so many things have gone wrong. We've had so many sort of like near misses and close escapes and and we've pretty much always got away from it. But there has been times like we had a show in Coventry, which is like the last show of our tour, maybe that first one, the 21 date one. And it snowed and, and the vans were just dilapidated old vans and they just couldn't, they just couldn't even start. We were just mm. stranded in, on the motorway in the snow and I like, had to cancel the show on the day of the show. Oh, um, so what happens, because obviously everything that's gone on in the last 12 months with coronavirus, when you, when, when it got back to there and you're having to cancel the show on the day, are you, re, you're refunding tickets to people because the show's not going on? Yeah. And so then you are then in a loss for what is it like the venue hire and all of the DJs and that you still have to pay them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, not hundred percent cost, but like marketing, obviously, everything that's got you to that point is already gone. And Facebook ain't giving you your money back because the event got the event got refunded. DJs and performers, generally, like it's on the day and they're missing out on work, so they're either keeping their money or maybe depending on what it is, if you've got a relationship maybe you can move it to like another date or something. Mm -hmm. But that was like the last date of the tour and whatever position we were in, we're now like another 15 down or something. Right. And it's just, 
it was avoidable. Do you know what I mean? You could have spent an extra hundred quid on a nicer van and not broken down. But at the time, you're just trying to get mm. by and you're just trying to get through and it's all a learning curve. And, you know, yeah, whenever you cancel a show, you lose money. That's kind of part and parcel now. It still hurts, obviously. Mm. Um, and the same with COVID. Like we've, we, we, we lost a couple of dates off our tour and we also had our first ever festival in the UK, which was at the uh, fairground Dreamland in Margate. Mm-hmm. Um, so we lost tens of thousands on that. Just, just because it can't happen. So, yeah, it's not, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. Because you did have there was a um, was it the Barcelona Easter weekender that was that was a uh, booked in? Was it? It was and supposed Prague. to be for April and Prague. We had, and we, Prague. had we had Prague in December, so we just lost that completely. Um, then we had Barcelona in Easter, which would have been a couple of weeks ago. So we lost that as well, but um, we got a new date in September. So about half the people wanted to keep the tickets. So half the people moved across and half got the refund. So we're waiting to see if that's going to happen. We've got Berlin, which is in July. That's not happening. Yeah, we lost, we lost, we lost the shirt ministry. We lost the shirt three three eight. We lost the show in London. We lost the show in Manchester. We lost three weekenders. We also lost obviously the whole of last autumn's tour as well. And because of the because it's. Be- Due to Corona, I know it's quite a sensitive subject with events mm. and festivals and stuff going on at the moment. Is there any insurance? There's no insurance, is there, against Corona policy? No, there's no insurance. Um, anyone that even did have insurance, it's, it's, it's an act of God. Um, right. They they don't cover you for that anyway. I think really what is the biggest determinant of like your financial health as, as, as an event business and whether or not you can weather the storm is what the nature of your event is. And we're very lucky because cause we're an event, like if you're a festival, especially if you're a festival that happens once a year, there's nowhere to hide. Like you are a permanent fixed structure, big, large scale event, which takes weeks, sometimes months to build. There's so many upfront costs and it either completely happens or it completely doesn't happen. And the numbers are so big that if it doesn't work out, you're gone. We're quite fluid in the fact that we're not a venue. We're not a festival. We can adjust and adapt. And don't get me wrong, like we've been massively hit financially from from the whole pandemic, but we're just lucky that that we we managed it as best as we can. We've refunded people where where people have been due refunds or they've requested them. So we haven't done wrong by by our attendees, by our guests, and we've been you know creative in the way that we've survived only up until this point. If if COVID continues, you know what happens next? Because we've lived this far. But then also forget us, but what about the other promoters, the other venues, the other festivals? Once the domino begins to fall, they all go. And then there's also no room for artists. There's no room for security. There's no room for caterers. There's no room for, you know, what about hotels? What about local food places? What about taxis? The whole the whole thing goes. Yeah, um, just like a big chain reaction once once they start. I mean, and the cancellation, so full disclosure, we're, we're recording this at the start of May. And the slightly smaller festivals, and some of them have had to have to postpone at the moment. It's like Two Thousand Trees Festival, I know, is postponed. Boomtown's been put back, and stuff like that, because they've been waiting for the government to be able to give them or offer any type of COVID insurance, and that's just not come through. So they know that they can't can't go ahead at the moment. Um, you were saying it, it's been seven seven years now for Foreverland, and everything that you've you've just detailed in the last section. Is there anything you wish you could tell yourself if you went back to like two thousand fourteen or two thousand fifteen that you that you could like have in hindsight? right now to be honest the things that i could have told myself would have been just efficiency things and processes and more like technical formal best practice kind of things but a lot of those you just got to live it to learn it you know like and whatever i have or haven't done wrong or right we've got to this point um and it's been you know it's been a journey it's been 
there has literally been blood, sweat and tears um, on numerous occasions. And there's been massive highs and massive lows. And there's been times where I just didn't want to ever do it again. Um, and there's been times where it's been like the best night of my life. So I could probably give myself some tools and give myself some general advices and probably look back on things in hindsight and go, oh, it would have been kind of useful if I knew that or did things that way. But to be honest, I'm here. I'm alive and kicking. The brand's great. We've had amazing memories. We've got a really great fan base um, and we've got huge plans. So I don't think that I would change anything. And actually... The worst parts of that whole experience have been the parts that have had the greatest positive impact on what we do now, whether it's how we run the show or whether it's, you know, even from more of like a business standpoint, what we're doing now, instead of doing 21 cities in every town and city across across the UK and turning up and trying to make things work, now we're only doing like eight or 10 shows a year in the UK, but they're massive shows. And that way we can dedicate so much more time and attention and love and care to every single show so that anyone who comes leaves and they cannot be disappointed yeah. they'll come and they'll go wow and that is so much more so much more valuable for them but so much more rewarding for us as well because if i could pay my bills i would do that anyway just to um you know i wouldn't necessarily want to just try and make loads of money my goal and i always used to do this back in the past whenever we do well of a show i then go and start spending more money on the show just because it, look, if, we, if we're fine I want everyone to have reinvesting back into the company. Yeah. Yeah. And now we're at a point where, okay, it has to be business. It has to make sense, but we've got so, so, so fewer shows, but they're so much better. However, would we have managed to get here if we hadn't gone and killed ourselves doing a hundred days in a row? I don't know. So I wouldn't change that. I'd probably just, the only, the, the, probably the biggest thing I'd probably say to myself, although I, at the time it was wild because I was a complete workaholic was probably just to chill out a bit and not put as much pressure on myself and probably give myself more breathing space and allow myself to have a, a more balanced lifestyle and look after my health because I really put myself through it. I was mm. working around the clock. Like I was on my computer 16, 17 hours a day without, without blinking. Mm. And I was killing myself. I didn't have a social life. I was going to say, because I a lot of... I remember seeing you at festival and I've seen you up with Foreverland like doing doing bits and pieces around mm -hmm. some of the cities as well. Do, do, do you get to enjoy it at the time or was it only in retrospect or reflection after the event that you go, oh, you know what, that was sick? I think, it's, I think it's both, mate. Like there's certain shows where you turn up and you just, there's something there. Like we had a show on the last tour that we did um, that was in Newcastle and we've, we've been working at Digital for like three, four years um, and they had a change to their programme and they basically told us on the week of the show, it was sold out like weeks in advance. They told us on the week of the show, yeah, you can't do the event. I said, like, what do you mean? So, like, oh, sorry, we're going to do a student night or something instead. Like every week, we're going to do a weekly, so we can have to get rid of all the promoters. Hustling, 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 doing all this stuff. And we get all the way to like the day of the event, basically. And it's still not resolved. And you have another venue, which is like a live music venue called Riverside. And it was only like 1100 cap or something. And they had a live show on that same day. And like when we do shows, we can't, we, we have to hide a venue for the whole day to do the decor. And it was off the back of like a really hard month, a really hard week. We were losing tons of money, felt awful. However, it happened about four or five hours before the show, we managed to cut a deal with them to actually use this other venue. The Riverside one. The Riverside which they don't do nights in. It's just a, it's just a gig venue. And we had to like agree to like put only a small amount of the decor up and it had to be tied up in the ceiling so that no one who saw the gig could actually see the decor. And it was horrible and that went wrong and we, we lose about 10 grand and all the hotels cancelled on us. I had like 22 members of staff to accommodate 
everything was going so wrong. I was, I felt horrible. We threw it all together somehow. Um, you know, it was like people were queuing outside and we were still building the stage because the, the, the gig had to end. It had yeah. to band out, get all the equipment off. We still managed to get it together. And I swear to God, that was probably like my top two or three favorite show we've ever done in seven years. Just because, because it was come together so last minute and it, it, it absolutely off. do it. There was such a narrative to it. And actually we kind of communicate that narrative to the, to the people who were coming because I was texting and emailing people saying, change the venue. Oh wait, venue's no longer changed. Oh wait, we changed the venue again. And people had never been there before. And it just kind of come together. And there's this, there's this wicked video of me. Yeah, I, we were going to touch on it earlier, but me on the mic, right? And then one of uh, Stevie Tame, he drops his song at probably what is obviously, he does the last set. So it was at the peak of the night. And I come back and as it, I come and scream and high five him. And it was just like elation, like the energy that was there. So those ones you can, you know, like, and the same with the 338 show, the, our debut at 338, which sold out. Those shows, you know, when you're there, this is special. But a lot of them, you get to the end of the night and I'll turn to Scott and we'll be like, wow, that was a really good show, wasn't it? And, and then other ones, talking to you now, looking back, you just laugh and you go, wow, like what, what a what a time we've had so it's a bit of a mixture to be honest talking about uh you jumping on the mic there yeah where where's because i've seen i've seen your shows because it's, it's, it's quite a rare thing if you're not an mc it's um you you get like you get people that host uh like on tv and host and stuff like that as well but uh, i remember when you were doing like bournemouth summer ball and stuff like that you'd uh you'd be jumping on the mic uh, is this is this a little uh sort of inside deep down uh guilty pleasure that you've you one day wanted to be like a an mc or one day wanted to be like a host like that or is this just to keep the night flowing and going <sighs> It's probably going to be a bit of two, a bit of both again. I mean, look, it was never my aspiration. It was never my ambition. I never thought I want to be an MC, a host, a rapper, an artist, whatever. I can't sing. I've got a girly voice. I I don't have the the ingredients. I don't have the toolkit to do it for a start. I think it just happened because we had like a show once. Okay, first and foremost, I think I was drunk um, and I was just, you know, being an idiot. And secondly, I think we had a show where the, the headliner or something was like really flat. Right. And it kind of brought the whole mood of the whole thing down. And then, you mean they were playing flat music? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, to be honest, I'm, I'm not going to go into names or whatever, and it's not all the time, but especially a few years ago, before we really kind of like defined what, what sound we have now, our residents were always the best sets. And then like, because they knew the show and they knew the crowd and they knew the, the vibe. And then the headliners would come in and they'd, they'd play for themselves a lot of the time. Right. Or they would, they would play and they didn't know how to react. Because we have people that come for the headliners. We have people that come for the Foreverland name. We have mm-hmm. people that come for the specific theme. And we have people that just come to see the characters and the decor and the cafe in the videos. So we don't have like a drum and bass DJ that is playing to a drum and bass crowd. We have a drum and bass DJ playing to whoever wanted to come. And whether it's house, drum and bass garage, whoever it was, if they come and they didn't recognize that early enough, that set would be the set that people go toilet, get a drink, go to the smoking area, which they're not used to because usually it's the other way around. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that happened. And I think we had to kind of pick the night back up. And I was like, all right, I'll, I'll just go on the mic. And I was, all I was doing was one, two, three, Ollie, Ollie, Ollie. But it felt really like amazing to be honest. Um, and then I just started doing it every week. And then to be like, I definitely wasn't good, but it got to a point where I was comfortable and people were coming up to me at the end of shows asking who I was and all these kind of things. <laughs> <laughs> you got a SoundCloud link, mate. You got a SoundCloud link. <laughs> it is, yeah. 
it got to a point, and I had a few big shows where I, I'm not gonna lie, they were pretty, pretty decent performances. I would jump into the crowd, and people would be carrying me in the crowd for the last set of the night. Um, That's so, got to feel good, surely. Um, it was incredible. It was incredible, and people would be like, "Oh my god, you just completely made my night." But never sober, never sober. And also, whilst because since you brought up the one earlier, uh, there, there's <laughs> a bit of a joke. There's a little alias for that as well. Okay. Um, the name is, and all the others, all the residents that take the piss, but it's Controller. Okay. He's like Con for Connor. Yeah. And uh, microphone and crowd controller. Yeah. Controller. So, um, all right. Yeah. So, if we see that come up on the bill on some of the posters now, we know that. Uh, yeah, know. it was actually my Instagram name for a bit. Um, and there's a couple of shows where on like the set times I would post at the bottom, it'd be like, hey, <laughs> my controller. Um, see it is in there it is in there deep down it's 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 documented it is documented um the thing is though with that and it's very it's the exact same situation with the dj thing i actually think i was a better a better host than i was a dj to be honest but um you gotta you gotta be honest and you have to be self-aware and you have to go this isn't what i do and i'm better off somewhere else and we have tyrone who's who's a great host and you know, sometimes he wouldn't be able to make it or whatever, and I'd, I'd step in. But he got to a point where he said, Tyrone, look, you, you got to play every show, mate, because as much as I actually kind of rate myself a little bit once I've had a drink, that's not what I'm supposed to do. And I'd be cheating the, the crowd if I didn't give them the best resources available to me. Yeah. And I have to I have to put in place the best ingredients I can, and I have to be aware to say that's not me, as funny as it is. Yeah. I'm not saying I will never do it again. Of course I will. But that's not what I do. I run the show. So, yeah. Um, no more escapades in the music side of things. Although I do a little, little, little exclusive for you. I do want to DJ at Foreverland at some point. Um, yeah. What do you think yeah. this year? Well, I was saying Barcelona, but obviously Barcelona got moved. But I reckon I might play. Like I kind of fancy myself on like a little closing set. So when was the last time you touched X? Last time you saw me, probably. Really? Oh, See, right after that was a, that was a couple of years ago. Yeah, yeah, okay then. So we might see, you might build yourself twice then on the poster. We'll have controller hosting and then um, and then bandana, you know, closing it out. Yeah, I mean, it should be. Um, we've got we've got free free eight in August, but I'm definitely not going anywhere near decks there. Um, Barcelona is in September, so I reckon I could sneak myself a little set in there. Yeah. Um, even if it's like a little boat party set or a little pool party or something. But it's more just, it's more just fun. Um, and... Two things I've always wanted to do, really, um, with Foreverland are one, play it, and two, actually go to one, um, because I get to do all this stuff from behind, behind, the, behind the scenes and backstage. But I'd love to actually know what what it's like, the experience, because I always felt for a long time this is the best event I've seen that I've been to, but I've never been to it. And I wanted to know what it was was really like. One, so that I could see if you know what I was seeing was true. But two, I want to know how the experience is from the person who attends because I want to improve every aspect of it. So I've jumped in the crowd a couple of times and, and for like an hour, and had a great time. And as soon as I'm standing, I'm looking around, making notes. Like, oh, I could do this. I could do this. I could do yeah. this. Change this. We could add this. Um, but I'm kind of hoping maybe this year, if not next year, to um, to sort of maybe. Put, put people in place so that I don't have to even work the night and yeah. I can actually go to the to the event as a customer and potentially not even tell not even like use the use the queue jump or anything like just go as a reveler yeah. and, and 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 document in my own notes and stuff 
what it was like start to finish. So yeah, that like Channel 4 programme where the secret boss was there. He'd be yeah, like, yeah, like, boss. yeah, what they call like Undercover Millionaire. Where yeah, yeah, like, that one. Yeah, <laughs> you can, yeah. You can put some prosthetic face makeup or something like that so nobody yeah, recognises yeah. you. Yeah, no, I just I just think, yeah, I just want to go and experience it so that I can, I can know truly what that experience is like. I mean, it's not going to be perfect because I'm always... I'm going to be there knowing what it is, but if I can, as far as possible, experience what, what, what my, what my attendees experience, then it can only be a thing that helps me improve, improve the overall experience to them. So. Riders can sometimes be a bit of a sticky situation for promoters and venue owners. I wanted to find out if Connor had ever had any out of the ordinary requests. Um, people love gossip and people love stories and um, I'm not expecting you or asking you to throw anybody under the bus and for legal reasons we're not going to be able to name certain names <laughs> but as someone that organises events and as someone that has had years experience now of putting on parties doing bookings dealing with artists dealing with other people's managers have you ever had any ridiculous requests on a rider is my first question that you have had to turn down and say I'm not accommodating this mm-hmm. or we I can't physically accommodate this um, well yeah, not naming names or anything and not committing, neither confirming nor denying um, whether or not the riders were fully delivered. But I've definitely had riders where, for example, one in particular, which I think you might probably even be aware of, it was a Bournemouth show and it was a pretty wild show. And they requested three Gs of local grass. Um, that was from the agent on on the actual rider. Yeah. Um, We've had some other similar requests. Those ones you don't get them that often. Um, more often, <laughs> it might not be in writing, but you, you, you know, the question gets asked. Yeah. But the silly ones are just like some of them where they're just unreasonable, and a lot of the time they don't even want it or they don't even use it. And I think that's a big problem with what that promoters have with like hotels and stuff is that artists will want like they'll you'll actually fall out with the agent over a certain hotel, and then they won't even stay. Um, and I haven't booked a hotel for an artist in about three years because really, I yeah, I just do my offers. Um, in a way that includes all of the hospitality stuff because I don't want to, like, it's one of the things I hate the most about the whole industry is is that side of it, um, is the agency part. It's the unnecessary I love, excess. I mean, yeah. it's just, you know, and, and there's, lo- there's loads of agents that are brilliant, like, that I, I love to be, so I've worked with for years. Um, and there's some agents that, that are not like that. Um, and it can cause you a headache. And I don't know one promoter that doesn't have a, a vibe with agents. And I'm sure agents will sit around and say they hate promoters. So, and we're probably not angels. Do you know what I mean, we probably do naughty things and put billings here and announce before we pay. And you know, I, I'm not saying that we're it's not a two way street. But from this perspective, looking out, it's such a headache that it really sometimes it looks like it really kind of puts like a a stain like it really tarnishes the experience and it makes me feel kind of resentful mm. um, and i and i've kind of fell out of love with it for a while because i was like there's no loyalty like i've booked people from the start and supported them and as soon as they get to a certain level they don't want to know you know you don't get looked after and like i said it's not blanket there's definitely artists and a lot of artists i work with will probably know that i'm speaking about them i have a great relationship with them i book artists from them all the time but yeah whether it's the artist which sometimes it is mainly it's not or it's the agency representing them or it's a manager or something. They can quite often be difficulties. Mm. Um, and if it's reasonable, you understand. It might not be to, to what you want, but you get it. But sometimes it's just rudeness, arrogance, or just like people just do stuff just just to do it. And that's why like a lot of our lineups, although we, we, we go on a tour, for example, so we want to try and deliver a similar show to most people. So a lot of the lineups will be similar. But I try to work with 
artists, whenever I book artists, I'll, I'll try and book two, three, four, five, five days in. Do you know what? That's something that we didn't touch on, but that is quite unique to you guys. Um, and you don't really get that. I don't know too many other sort of brands that do tours and will book sort of the same, the same sort of roughly in a roundabout way the same lineup you are taking that on tour around the uk which yeah. is normally obviously what you would do if you're in a band or if you were like an axe like that so yeah. it's quite unique to yourselves that that you've got say yeah. for example some of the names that we've got um in the next tour is it james hype um, yeah the next tour is james hype low stepper we second city uh endor um as like the core sort of like headliners there's two of those per show and then there's like really strong support of residents uh now as well um, like lots of like really people who are like really doing bits on the cusp of, of blowing up. Yeah, I mean, most of those guys have got between two and six bookings each on that tour. And that's, like I said, it's, it's, it's a few things. Number one, we want to kind of try and, I, I, I'm trying to build the show so that we don't, we never tell the DJs what to play, but we want the show, the show to be as coordinated and choreographed as possible so that people get the experience. Because once you leave it up to interpretation, you're going to get an amazing show here and maybe the show here won't be as good. And that's been a learning curve of, of the last years of doing this as well. Uh, part of it is trying to gauge like the kind of vibe we're going to get at certain points of the night um, for performance value. And some of it as well is just way easier to work with fewer people who you, you'll come to someone. Is that anything, mate? If I come to you and I say, yeah, can I buy this car? You go, okay, fine, whatever. Uh, can I buy five cars? Yeah, you can, mate. Yeah, of course you can. And I want a discount and I want them all to have an MOT and I want you to mm-hmm. valet all of them. People are more willing to do that and they know that you're a good customer so, they, so they'll, they'll, they'll sort of like be flexible with you. And you just you get to know the artist, you get to know the management, you're working with the agent. So the whole thing is easier. And also as well, the other, the other factor is it's actually very difficult to book artists across the country because in most territories you have exclusivities. Either there's one big promoter in each territory or there's maybe two or three in like really big cities, but you can't even get close to some of these acts that you, that you like. So you've got to kind of work hard to find acts that fit your show. Um, and when you find those those gems, you've you've got to kind of like make the most of them. And that's why we try to sort of in, bring them into our, our roster, as it were, and say, look, come on, we'll, we'll put you on shows here, here and here. Then we've got the international weekenders and we've got tours in other countries coming. So yeah, it's, it's a bit of a, um, it's a bit of a balancing act. Some people but, might not be aware of that actually, just touching on that point. So would you be able to describe, so there's certain acts or certain people around the country that you would not be able to play in a city because they've played there previously, it's maybe the previous month or you wouldn't be able, be able to book them because they've got exclusivity somewhere. Is that the management that is enforcing that exclusivity or is that some other club or brand that is enforcing that? Well, it depends. So if the artist is relatively free-flowing, just from a business perspective, you wouldn't want to book the same act in the same territory too soon because you're just going to saturate your audience. Mm-hmm. Um, so from a strategic standpoint as an artist, there's that anyway. So most artists would only play each territory once or twice a year. The only exception to that might be somewhere like London where you've got weekly bi-weekly, monthly, you've got events all year round, all the time. And London's so vast that really, unless you're like a top, top tier act where you're doing a standalone show or a big headline show, anywhere below that can kind of like play maybe London three, four, five times a year. In the major cities, you know, you probably only want to go there maybe once or maybe twice a year, or you might do a club night and then you might do a festival, for example. So part of it's strategic from the artist management side and the agent side, but some of it is more like if you, if I'm the promoter in, in Glasgow, I, I book, I do 10 events a year, let's say, and I book two acts every, every, every show. So that's 20 acts a year. 
if you're the agent, you want that business. So in order to keep the business, you will say, look, mate, I will only let you book my acts. Right, get you. And that way you'll only book acts from me. And it's like a mutually beneficial relationship between mm. the promoter and the agent. The artist doesn't really come into it. That's that's an arrangement between the, the promoter and the agent. The agent has different acts and, you know, an act might last for six months, a year, five years, 20 years, however long that life cycle of that act is, the agents and the promoters are quite, you know, they persevere through, they kind of exist through all the trends and all, and all the genres. So it's about relationships and they're sort of scratching each other's back saying, look, mm -hmm. I won't let any other promoter have that act and maybe sell tickets for a night that you could have sold tickets for. Mm -hmm. But in exchange, you'll keep booking all my acts. And a lot of the time they'll say, right, let's say you, you name one act, that's big on, on, on an artist, um, on, a, on an agency. They'll also have loads of like smaller acts that they're trying to like build. Mm. They'll say, yeah, yeah, have this act, but you've also got to take this act and this act. So the smaller acts are getting booked purely off the basis that they're jumping, they're band, they're jumping on the bandwagon of the bigger acts. They're eating off the back of the bigger acts booking. Have you had to experience this in the past? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. You, 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 it's very difficult to book acts without having some degree of, of this um, the clause in there like oh yeah you can have my headline act but you've also got to put these on the support or you've got to have them at one yeah, show or type some, thing look, sometimes the agent will just say can we do this and you'll make that decision whether or not you can do it um i've had scenarios and i'm not gonna name any names where people are like yeah you can only have my act if you have this act and you know sometimes it might come down to like a budget thing where it's like right we're, we're trying to negotiate a financial deal here and obviously agents always want a fortune for the art for the acts and you can't hate them for that because that's their job. They have to try and earn as much money for that artist and potentially a short career span as possible. Mm -hmm. The problem is that by doing that, it hurts the promoter, which then means the promoter can't book as many acts, doesn't give as many artists a chance, has to increase the ticket prices, which hurts the customer, or the promoter goes out of business, or the promoter does less events and then the venue gets hurt. So someone always has to get hurt and everyone's looking after themselves. But the agent has to represent their interests and the artist's interests, which also represents the management company. So a lot of the time, you'll be doing a deal and they'll use the whole budget for that one act. And you'll, you'll go right down to the pennies of trying to get it over the line. And just when you get it agreed, they're like, yeah, and then put my other act on. It's like, well, we've used all the budget here. Well, if you want your act to play, then you can, okay, we'll make room for them to play. But we can't then give you two grand for that person. So it happens. It's not all the time. And most times the agents will just say, can we accommodate this act? And they won't push it. They'll just be like, can we? And if you can, you like to do it because you want to, sometimes it might be a new kind of exciting upcoming artist that hasn't really got any clout yet or any profile, but they might do. And also you want to work with the agent and you want to like help them. If they help you, you want to help them. And that's the same thing I said with, with all the kind of headliners and stuff we're booking now is as soon as the agent and the management is polite to me and friendly and maybe they jump on the phone and we figure something out, they might want more money in this city and less money in this city or they might want a certain date. If I go, look, let me see if I can help you. And then after that, they'll be friendly and nice to me and they'll help me. But sometimes, you know, they just don't want to know and they just, it's their way or the highway. A lot of that comes with how successful the roster is because if you've got all the big acts, and it's human nature. So once again, I'm not angry at them for it. And it's not to say that I wouldn't do the same thing if I was in their position. So I would only know that when I was there and I'd want to do, I'd want to be the best agent I could be if I was an agent. Then I know every single promoter I know, there's acts that we won't even book just because of the attitude. Really? 
Yeah, hundred percent, mate. Because at the end of the day, we, we're forgetting here that this is, you know, especially music industry, it's not. We're not all doing this for money. Like you're doing it for the love. Because there's a million other careers out there that pay way, way, way better. So if it was about money, most of these people, or anyone that's just solely money focused, I don't know that many people in this industry that are money focused. Because it's it's not the best paying job. Yeah, you do it because you love it, and because you want to put on shows or you want to help build an act or you you want the the live performance element, whatever it is, you do it at the end of the day, it all boils down to, to the music and, and the shows and the experience. Be nice. I just think be nice. I think that's a good mantra for everyone. But I think in this industry, a lot of the time, I think people are just not that nice. And hopefully, off the back of this whole COVID situation, um, some people will be. And I've seen, to, to, to the credit of a lot of agents, there's been loads of agents that I've worked with over the last year that have been super flexible They've moved shows, they've refunded, they've said, okay, cool, we'll put you here. So it's not it's not to tarnish agents. It's, 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 it's like anything, it's individuals. Mm. And agents will probably say, yeah, promoters are cool, but there's two or three promoters I hate. Like, yeah. it's the same thing. So I think it swings around abouts, but I think if everyone was a little bit nicer to each other, it might, it might be a nicer place to work. Regardless of your involvement in the music industry, whether you're a DJ or a fan, this summer is going to be different for everyone. Contracts and deals might have changed, dates will have altered, and expectations have shifted. I spoke to Connor about what this means for his upcoming events. Have you seen much change moving into a post-COVID world where you're booking people? I'm not asking for specific examples again, but yeah. I've spoken to, to several people on the podcast, and it's been mixed between people saying, um, no, people are people are still charging the same amount of money before they were COVID or people have now increased. I've seen some people online and some people doing like a COVID tax and this other oh. side of uh, tax added on top of it. And then some people have been like, no, you know what? Everyone's been really humble. Um, the last 12 months have humbled people and brought stuff into focus and they've lowered their rates and they've been a lot more accommodating. What have you experienced? Yeah, once again, it's a mixture. I have had agents that have never been nice to me, calling me up, being polite, calling me um, and just being flexible. And obviously it suits them, but mate, I'm not here to make enemies. Like if you want to be friends, let's be friends. Even if it, even if there's an ulterior motive, it's just way nicer to be polite. Um, you know, it's, it's a mixture. I think anyone, look, we, we've all lost money and everyone has bills to pay. Everyone probably has mortgages and rents and kids and you know, dreams and everyone has things they need money for, obviously. But passing that on to somebody else isn't a sustainable approach. And there's so much financial risk for the promoter in the venue that really, and also we've seen it now, people will go to events without, without lineups anymore. Mm. Like people are paying 20 odd quid to go to a social distance sit down, yeah, like thing. So do you now need a 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 grand lineup? I don't think so. I think people are desperate to go out. And I just think if you're an artist right now, you, it's not like you're being bumped. It's not like you're not being paid for your creativity. It's the world has changed. It's the same they're talking about in football, they're talking about in boxing, they're talking about everywhere. Everyone's having to take less money because there's less money there. Mm. So I think you just have to adapt. And those that adapt, like anything, the survival of the fittest, you're not going to take less money forever. You're just going to take less money for the next 18 to 24 months. Whilst this whole and it might not even be that long. It might even be just 2021. But if you're nice and you're flexible, I'll remember that. I'll book you again or I'll book someone else on your roster. You know, you, you must have seen yourself like what's happened to people's streams and certain genres have really suffered over COVID. Hmm. 
that is a great example of what would happen if you froze out the promoters because you try to price yourself out. And a lot of those artists now, um, listen to one of your other podcasts that talk about the, the playing field being leveled. I don't agree that the headliners are now in the same position as like the, the local DJs, the bedroom DJs, because at the end of the day, you still have a brand, you still have a, a release history. Um, but a lot of the bigger guys have been complacent and rested on their laurels. And a lot of these guys that you never even heard of have exploded on social media. And they're now way more powerful than these bigger guys so let's see how let's see how it pans out um you were touching on earlier about and talking about we were talking about bookings and talking about artists um have you ever had to experience where you 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 plan obviously the shows a certain amount of time ahead you might plan them a year ahead six months ahead eight months ahead or up to two years prior you're getting bookings in and you're getting headlines and you get contracts signed and you get things sorted mm-hmm. have you ever had to book somebody and then when it's come around to them doing the show or it's got nearer the time they've exploded or they've become more popular than when you originally booked them and you've had to like been asked to adapt the the payment or asked to adapt their rider or asked to to change sort of what you're giving them because when you originally made that contract and booking because I was under the assumption beforehand that if 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 you're signing a contract from the from the artist or manager's level you're signing them giving them this much fee and they've signed it and they've allowed it but when speaking to festival organisers or when I've spoken to other people they're like to be honest they've got to be a legal team they've got a bigger back in there if they want to ask for more money we even need to tell them to piss off. Or we need to pay them the more money. Like I was, I wasn't aware that that was the situation. Um, yeah, I mean, generally speaking, I've been lucky in the sense that hasn't happened very often to me. I've been quite lucky in that I've picked artists at the right times. So they've kind of come into their own around the show. I've definitely had acts that I had a situation literally very, very, very recently where I had acts booked and announced, and then they got cancelled because of COVID. And then I booked and moved the bookings across to a new show that got announced, and which has now been cancelled by COVID. So we were moving it to a new show and the act doesn't want to move. Obviously, because the act is a lot bigger now. And I was willing to pay more money, but the act just wants to completely go off a different kind of thing. But yeah, I think I've been, personally, I've been lucky, but I do know these kind of situations. I think it's wrong because, mate, you did the deal. And once again, that will never be forgotten. I had your act for a low amount of money not because i was being cheap but because i spotted your act had potential and i was willing to book them when no one else was booking them because if everyone else was booking them they wouldn't have been that price they'd have been the demand would have been there so they'd have been charging more so i think it's another classic scenario of people serving their own interests and i think i I don't agree with it i think it's bad practice i think it's bad karma like honor the deal that's one thing you've, got, you've always got to honor a deal in business, even if you're going to end up worse off than you were, or at least you could go to somebody who you're in a business deal with. And this isn't to do with artists, it's to do with anything. And just say, look, circumstances have changed, situations have changed. Can you do anything for us? Can you help us? Can you do this? Can you do that? And if the person on the other end of the deal goes no, whether they try to or not, you're in contract. If you then go, well, tough, I'm gone. Then that's bad business. And yeah. And then if you relate it back to the artist thing, well then, all right, yeah, maybe I'm not even going to get to book you now because now you're, if I, I, this hasn't happened with Stormzy, but let's say I booked Stormzy for a thousand pound and then three months later, he's now 20,000 pound. Another three months later, he's a hundred thousand pounds. So I'm not even going to get to book him again. Mm. But the person who maybe screwed me over, maybe the agent might have someone else coming through, artist A, 
and say, oh, can we book this artist? And I'll go, no, mate, because you just screwed me over with Stormzy. You mugged me off with the other one, yeah. People and won't forget. It doesn't work like that, mate. Like, I'm not going to forget that. You've done that to me. And um, I've, I've started having that myself where, that you know, maybe agents that are coming to me, and I'm like, nah, that's cool. Because I don't want to work with you if that's, if that's the vibe. Um, and I think, that, like I said, about being nice, like, I get it. Sometimes circumstances change. And actually, to be honest, the agents, no matter what deal they do, they still got to go to the manager and the manager and the artist still has to approve it. So it's not like the the, the agents are the devil. Mm-hmm. They're just the representative and they have to do the best thing they can do. But if the agent says to me, look, I'm really sorry, but like the management's playing up or the artist is playing up and this is, I'm sorry, I'd go, it's cool. But if that doesn't happen, then I'm like, well, you're just being greedy. I was going to say, I've had it... Um, I even had it like a couple of weeks ago with like billing for the tour. I've had, you go for the agent for everything, but like I said, when you book certain acts, I've actually had the managers call me up and have a chat outside the agent and go, look, this is the situation. Because I'm, I'm messaging the agent, the agent's messaging the manager, the manager's messaging the artist, and I'm getting stressed because I'm waiting, you're taking ages. And then all of a sudden, me and the manager go direct. And it's not to cut out the agent because it doesn't work like that, but the manager says, these are my problems. And I go, okay, fine. These are my solutions. These are my problems. He goes, okay, fine. These are our solutions. Cool. Done. Deal done. Boom. Sweet. Then we just email the agent and say, it's all sorted. And I just think, obviously you can't, you know, you don't always cut, you can't cut out the middleman, otherwise there wouldn't be agents. So that's why they do it like that. But if everyone just communicated and was more humane with the way they conducted business, it would be so much easier. So, you know, just be hum- just be humane and be friendly. 100%, mate. It's a good, uh, it's a good ethos to, uh, to finish it with there. Well, finish that section with what I was going to actually get onto was the main new thing, Neon Jungle and the new tour. We've got London, 27th of August, Manchester, Lincoln, Bristol, Birmingham, Leeds, all the big cities. Uh, lots of O2 academies on there, Albert Hall at Manchester. What can people expect if they're coming to Neon Jungle, if they've never been to a Foreverland event before, if they're coming to these shows uh, in 2021, what, what can people expect? Yeah, I mean, look, there's a few different things I could try and sell, like what the decor is going to be, what what, what performers are going to be, how much confetti we're going to do. But to be honest, it's, I, could, I could communicate it way, way better to you by just encapsulating what we've all been through the last year. With Foreverland, I'm always trying to improve it and I'm always trying to make it better. And we're always doing what we can to to optimize all the elements so that people go, wow. But this last year has really starved everyone. Whether you're like a music head or whether you just go out on a weekly, whoever you are, wherever you are, you just want to go out. And now that has put so much more into perspective that you can never take it for granted again. And we are putting everything we've got into like doubling the production doubling the decor we're changing the music we're putting two headlines in we've got double like we literally got the team of performers everything is so much bigger so much better we've already had all the staging designed all the decor designed we've got loads of technology that's getting um, built into the shows as well so that we're not we were just constantly trying to improve it and i'm so excited to even be there because i know what we're going to deliver the theme is the thing like the decor looks great but really, theme aside, if you come to this show in autumn, I think it would be like one of those scenarios where you say that was like the best event I've ever been to. That is like the best night of my life going out. And I've always tried to do that. But now more than ever, it's like, let's not mess around anymore. Like we're here now. We've got the opportunity to go again. Let's not take it for granted. And we're going to blow people away. 
So I would highly recommend anyone that is listening, whether you've been before or you've never been, whether you thought maybe it was for you, wasn't for you, you liked the music, you didn't like the music, you weren't available, there was a wedding, whatever it is, whatever the excuse is now, there's no more excuses. No one's got anything planned. No one's got any any commitments. Everything's on ice. So just the dates, the dates are out. Commit, put your 20 quid in, and I promise you, you'll leave sweating and wowed. And <laughs> you'll come away and you'll be like, wow, what, what a night. That's a fantastic promotion and a fantastic bit of advertising for the shows that are coming up yeah, in the right. autumn. Like I said, we've got London, Manchester, Lincoln, Bristol, Birmingham, Leeds, Cardiff, Bournemouth, Leicester, Glasgow. If you live in any of those cities or anywhere near those cities, uh, there's definitely going to be an event coming to you soon, shortly in the autumn time. Uh, Connor, mate, it's been absolutely fantastic to chat to you. It's been a good laugh. It's been uh, it's very 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 insightful to hear about uh, your perspective on the scene and the industry. And as someone that I've seen from the very first event, being at the doors opening, uh, to seeing what Foreverland has grown into now, mate, has been a, a fantastic journey so far. And I uh, wish you the best of luck with it going on into the future. Yeah, and um, mate, it's it's actually so like serendipitous that you to have this conversation with you with you having played the first ever set. It's kind of a shame you didn't have like the t-shirt or something you wore because that'd be worth a lot of money one day. <laughs> <laughs> maybe one day, man, maybe one day. But yeah, it's a good it's a good full circle. It's a great full circle. Yeah, maybe the USB that you had would have been worth a bit, but I'm not sure there's a couple of dodgy tunes on there. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I wouldn't even know what the, uh, yeah, I wouldn't even know what the track list was now though, but it'd be interesting to see. I might see if I can dig out the, uh, I probably recorded the set, so I'll see if yeah, I can dig well, out at some point. You get it, send it over, mate. It'd be a blast from the past for sure. <laughs> Told you once, told you twice, you know what I mean? Alright, alright.